Cindy, great to have you back. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. And just to prepare you, we're also going to be in a little bit of Matthew and Colossians before the day's over. Some of you are thinking we're going to be here that long. Still going to get you out before lunch. You ever been on the phone with maybe customer service and you're just kind of thinking, is this the final word on this? Is there somebody else I can talk to? I learned a lesson in college. I was basically a glorified office boy for an insurance agency. And uh, I walked in one day and the accountant was on the phone with somebody. I could tell he was frustrated. And this was the last thing I heard him say before I walked out the door. Can I talk to somebody dumber than you? I won't recommend you use that. That's not a real nice thing to say to people. But, you know, we normally say, can I see your boss? If you're at a restaurant or you're at a place of business and you're thinking, can I see a manager? Surely this isn't the answer I'm going to get. That's what I want you to see this morning. The title of the sermon is, But God. The circumstances on that first Easter Sunday morning seemed absolutely dire. They were awful, horrible. But in this passage, three times is the word, but here's what you thought it happened, but you thought it was over, but you thought Satan had had the final word, but let's look first at Luke and I want to get you the context. So let's start in verse 23, chapter 23, verse 50. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was walking, was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut in the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Verse 1, chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. But he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee? saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. First thing I want you to see is that Jesus kept his word supernaturally. You catch the context of the passage. You see Joseph of Arimathea, a righteous man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And so all we can assume is he wasn't there the day they voted to crucify Jesus because the Bible tells us they were unanimous. And yet the Bible tells us here he was not in agreement. 
So he wasn't there for the vote. He apparently had become a follower of Christ. And so at the day of the crucifixion, he comes and asks for the body of of Jesus. In fact, when he went to ask for it in Mark's gospel, Pilate said, is he dead already? Why do you think Pilate asked that? Because the Romans were experts in carrying out crucifixion. In fact, they wanted crucifixion to take a while. But they had done some things to Jesus they didn't normally do. They had beaten him nearly to death. They had mocked him, spit on him. According to Isaiah, they pulled his beard. All those things, not to mention the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, the agony that he was in, Jesus was already dead by 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So when Joseph went and asked for his body, Pilate, recognizing Joseph of Arimathea as one of the Sanhedrin, said, is he already dead? So what do they do? The soldiers come and inspect the bodies. The two men on the cross with him, one on either side of him, were not yet dead, so they broke their legs. It was a merciful thing to do to hasten the crucifixion. The thing we don't get was it wasn't the nails in the hands that killed him. What killed the people on a cross was suffocation. They would slump out of exhaustion, and they'd have to push themselves up on feet that were pierced with a nail catch a breath, and then sink back down. And they did that for hours, if not in some cases, days. The Romans wanted them to be right by the roadside so that the people coming into town and leaving town would see them. They'd put an inscription above their head. We'll talk about this in a minute. They basically said their crime. Why do you think they put them near the roadside? Because it was a witness to the rest of the world. Whatever they did... Don't do it or you may end up like them. Well, by 3 o'clock in the afternoon when the soldiers came to break the legs of Christ, they didn't have to. He was already dead. Again, expert executioners recognized he's dead. Just to make sure, they pierced his side with a spear. Blood and water came out. They knew he's dead. Joseph of Arimathea took his body down, wrapped it in linings. We find out in John's gospel that Nicodemus was with him. And had about a hundred pounds worth of spices. I kind of wonder sometimes, what, what were the women thinking? Why did they have to go back that night and hastily prepare more spices? It, it could be the women said they didn't do it right. I think more than that, it was the women thought, what is the one last thing we can do? We've got to do something to show our love and devotion for this man. So the last thing they thought of, we can at least help Prepare the body. So Joseph of Arimathea laid him in his own tomb. We know from Scripture that Jesus was laid in a borrowed tomb. So Joseph of Arimathea, apparently a wealthy man, had a tomb that was especially carved out of the rock for him and his family. Nobody else had ever laid there. And he sacrificed to give this tomb to Jesus. Now, the good news is Jesus didn't need it for very long. He got, Joseph of Arimathea got his tomb back a few days later. But one thing we know, it was not a tomb intended for Jesus. In fact, if you go to the garden tomb today, I was just there last month, you'll see a place where it's possible that they laid the body of Christ. But one thing I can tell you for sure, whoever laid in that tomb 
was not intended to lay in that tomb. They had to quickly carve out a little extra room for the feet of whoever laid there. They had cut this tomb into the rock, and it had been perfectly prepared for somebody, the one in the garden tomb in Jerusalem. And so it's possible that that's the place that Christ was laid. There's a lot of other reasons to think that. And I won't go into that. Just You've got to go to Israel to see it for yourself. But the women, I've tried to put myself in their place. What do you think they were thinking? Saturday. It's the Sabbath. From sundown Friday till sundown Saturday, they really couldn't do any work, so they hastily prepared before sundown on Friday. And probably in their mind was going over, okay, what are we going to do Sunday morning? What are we going to do once the Sabbath's over? Do we have everything ready? We're going to get together and make that horrible walk to a cemetery. And we're going to be there with the body of Christ who's already been dead for a few days. But we're going to lovingly prepare his body. And all the spices could do was to help make the decaying body not quite smell smell as bad. It's still going to decay. That had to be on their mind. The Sabbath's over. Saturday night at sundown. But it's dark. They can't do anything. They've got to wait till the first light. And, and every one of the Gospels talks about early in the morning. I think is civil twilight is what it's called. If you were at the sunrise service this morning, the sun was supposed to rise at about six, uh, 6.45. But about 6.20 to 6.30, you can start seeing. It's light enough. Sun hadn't quite come up, but it's called civil twilight. I think that's when they're coming. They're coming to the grave, and they are expecting First thing they're expecting, they're expecting to see a stone over the the entrance because they had seen that place there. They thought, who's going to roll the stone away for us? And they may have been thinking, are they going to let us do what we came to do? There's Roman guards there now. Are they going to let us move that stone long enough to prepare the body? Surely they don't think we're coming to steal the body. Those things probably were going through their mind. And we get to verse 1 of chapter 24. And all that's what they expected, but what they found was entirely different. They get there, the stone has been rolled away. It says they were perplexed. That literally means to have no way out, to be at a loss. Just seeing the stone rolled away totally changed their game plan. I'm sure they initially and immediately thought, wait a minute, why would the stone be rolled away? Have they done something with the body? And I, I don't think the thought has crossed their mind yet that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's just the stone's been rolled away. So put yourself in that mind frame. You're perplexed. You're thinking, how can this be? And all of a sudden, two men stand beside you in dazzling clothes, angels, in shining garments. And it says they were terrified. That's probably an understatement. If you've walked to a cemetery and it's barely daylight... And all of a sudden, there's two men standing beside you in garments that are glowing. I don't think terrified is the word we would use. They were terrified. They were afraid. They were alarmed. They bowed their faces to the ground. Again, they were prepared, but they weren't prepared for this. I've thought about this a lot this week. They had gone back to prepare spices, so they came with spices To prepare the body. They were prepared for what they would find when they get there. But when they got there, what they were prepared for is not what they encountered. Has that ever happened to you? (laughs) Have you ever been prepared for something you thought? 
And when you got there, you found out, well, I wasn't prepared for this. My first semester of seminary, I, I, I had to take a, a language. You either take Greek or Hebrew, and you take both of them eventually. And I couldn't get in a Greek class, so I got in a Hebrew class. And again, I'd been out of college for a couple of years when I went back to seminary. And I walked into my Hebrew class the first day. He handed us a syllabus. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'd never heard that word. I'd gone to high school, college, graduated with a four-year degree. I don't, we just, in Macon, Georgia, we didn't use the term syllabus, I suppose. So a guy passed out a syllabus. So I'm, I'm a little perplexed. What's this? Everybody else acted like they knew what it was, so I pretended I did too. I went and bought my books, came the next day of class, and I had a problem. I was prepared. I had my book. I had my notebooks, but I hadn't read the syllabus. First thing the professor says is, Take out a sheet of paper. I thought, I got a sheet of paper. He had written 20 words in Hebrew on the blackboard. He said, all right, translate these 20 words. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. And the thing that bothered me the most is everybody around me is writing. And I'm just kind of sitting there thinking, well, I'm going to read the syllabus. The syllabus said... Every day in class, you'll have a test. And the first day in class, or actually the second day, but the first day after you get your books, you need to know this. So I was not prepared for that. And the worst thing of all is, after this test, he says, okay, change papers with the person next to you. (laughs) Guy next to me, we became friends. His name's Bill. I looked at him. We're supposed to grade each other's paper. I said, this will be easy. I mean, I was so embarrassed. I handed him my piece of paper. He handed me his. He got most of his right. He didn't even have to pay attention. He just put an X on it or something, a zero. But that never happened again. I don't know about you, but there's times we think we're prepared. Now, those women knew they were prepared. If you had asked them and interviewed them on the way to the tomb, they could have answered every question you asked. What are you coming for? We're coming to prepare a dead body. These two men stand next to him. And what do the men say? One of them speaks and says, why are you here? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Don't you remember? They didn't remember. Jesus had told them back in Galilee. He told the disciples the night before he's crucified, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise from the dead. And how about meeting me in Galilee? And you and I look at that and think, how could they be so ignorant? You and I would have been the same way. Why? Because when you see somebody laid in a tomb, you kind of expect they're going to stay there. These ladies were prepared, but they were prepared for the wrong thing. Because Jesus had risen from the dead. He had kept his promise. Supernaturally. The second thing... He fulfilled the law perfectly. And you've got to really understand a little bit more about Easter than just that Jesus rose from the dead. What did Jesus do on the cross? What did he accomplish on the cross? There was a law of God and we had broken it. In fact, the Old Testament has over 600 laws. We know about the Ten Commandments, right? There are over 600 laws in the Old Testament. And even the most religious Jew of that day could have told you, This is impossible. You can't keep the law. 
So you got a couple options. One, you can do what they did. They just started kind of putting traditions to the law and said, okay, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, so here's some ways to make sure you don't do that. You can't carry certain things, you know, heavier than very little. You can't write more than two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You can't, you know, if your house catches on fire, you can't carry anything out, only yourself and what you're wearing. You can't walk more than a certain distance. And Jesus even said, you are piling up traditions on people that have become a burden. Why don't you let them be set free? And that's what Jesus did on the cross. In Leviticus, you look at the law in, in Leviticus. If you want to jot this down, it's, I think it's Leviticus chapter 24, but it's Leviticus where on one day, Yom Kippur, that's when sins would be atoned for. And that had been happening for hundreds of years. The priest had to take a special bath and put on special garments. He had to kill an animal for his own sins so that he could even go into the presence of God. In fact, in Leviticus, God tells to Moses, hey, listen, don't go back there the way the sons of Aaron did. Anybody remember what happened to the sons of Aaron? Nadab and Abihu went into the Holy of Holies and were consumed by fire. So God says, you don't just come into my presence willy-nilly like that. You've got to be prepared. You've got to be washed. Your sins have to be paid for and atoned. And back then, for hundreds of years, they had done that by slaughtering animals, sprinkling blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and picking two perfect goats. They would cast lots, and one goat they would slaughter. The other goat was called the scapegoat. They would pray over the head of that goat all the sins of the people would go into that goat. And then somebody was designated to lead that goat out of, out of town. And lead that goat far enough out of town so it would no way he'd ever come back. I'd hate to be the guy that had the job that year that leads the goat out, comes home. Next morning you wake up hearing goat out in the, out in the yard. You know, you had one job. But what was that a picture of? That was a picture of God taking the sins away. And they had been observing that for over a hundred, for thousands of years. Because the law of God had to be kept. And so the Jews said, well, we'll either, we'll do it by tradition. What Jesus came to do is saying, I'll keep the law and I'll be that lamb of God who will shed his blood for the sin of the people. So the law of the Old Testament makes us throw up our hands and say we're helpless without a Savior. That's exactly what Jesus came to be. So in Matthew, in Luke's gospel in chapter 24 when he said he must be delivered, the angels speak to the women and say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's risen. He told you. But he must be delivered. Why? Because that's what it was going to take to pay the sin of the people. Look at Matthew's gospel, chapter 5. Just a couple of verses. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said this. Do not think. Okay. Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he says, don't think that. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
So way back at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew's gospel on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, listen, don't think I've come to do away with the law. No, the law in the Old Testament was a schoolmaster. It showed you you desperately need a Savior. I didn't come to abolish, which literally means to tear down, demolish. I came to fulfill it, which means to complete or cram till it's full. One of the things I've watched happen around here for six months well, it hadn't happened for six months, but six months ago, for about a month or two, stuff had to be demolished. Hurricane happened on Sunday, October 8th. Excuse me, I think it was Saturday. I came over on Sunday, and our staff and some of our trustees were here observing the property. Two days later, we had about 50 volunteers show up. Seventeen of them were from medieval times. Those strapping knights and squires and some of their other help from over there came over to help us. And I noticed you put a sledgehammer in the hands of one of those big old boys, they went to town. I don't think they'd be much good putting anything back. For some reason, it's more fun tearing stuff up. And it was great to have their help until we fed them. <laughs> they worked really hard. In fact, I asked one of them, I said, Is it, y'all don't have to have a workout today, are you? He said, we're used to working really hard for five minutes at a time. They worked for two or three hours till we fed them. And after lunch, we couldn't get them to do anything. We just kind of said, it's time for y'all to leave. <laughs> but we've seen demolish happen around here. Putting it back is taking a lot longer and takes a lot more skill. You can't put back with a sledgehammer or a wrecking ball. That's what Jesus said. I didn't come to destroy the law. The law of the Old Testament still stands. It must be kept. And yet it's impossible for us to keep perfectly. But yet Jesus did. So when he died on the cross, he fulfilled the law. He completed the law. What the Jews had done up to that time and even to this time, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. Here's what was finished. Paying the penalty of the law. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. And then the last thing. The best thing. Jesus assures life powerfully. Back in Luke's gospel, he said on the third day, the angel said to the women, on the third day he would rise again. Folks, it's great that he died for our sins, but if Jesus had stayed in the grave, we wouldn't have the hope we have of eternal life. But what the empty tomb proves to us is that what Jesus said about eternal life is real. It's possible. The cool thing about the stone rolled away from the grave, Jesus didn't need that to get out. God rolled that stone away so we could get in. There's, there's two places in Jerusalem right now they claim could be the burial place of Christ. I've been in both of them. They're both empty. And if there's a third one that's the real place, if one of those two is not the real place, it's empty too. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to multiple people over the course of 40 days, on one occasion over 500. He rose and assures life powerfully. Last place I'll have you turn to is Colossians chapter 2. 
And folks, you've got to get this. This is powerful. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. <clears throat> Let me read the passage. Colossians two thirteen. When you were dead, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death, debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. You catch what Paul is saying to the Colossians? When you were dead, what does that mean? That means when you were helpless, a dead person can't do this for themselves. When you were dead in your transgressions, and that's a specific word with a specific meaning. It means there was a path God had for you and you weren't on it. You were walking away from God if a dead person could do that. But certainly spiritually, spiritually, everything you did was against God. You had become an enemy of God. You were dead in transgressions and the uncircumcision of your heart. And he has made you alive. Again, we didn't do this. He did it. He made us alive together with him, having forgiven us. I love that word. The Bible speaks of forgiveness, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And there's something about the way God forgives that we've got to understand. Because you and I struggle with forgiveness. If somebody does something to you and you genuinely forgive them, what's the one thing you can't do? You can't forget. John F. Kennedy said, forgive your enemies but never forget their names. Which means make a list. Check it twice. You might want to get revenge, or you might want to look out for them in the future. When God forgives, he literally sends it away. Remember the scapegoat? That's the picture that God was trying to say. Your sins have been prayed over the head of this goat, and it symbolically is taking your sin out of the camp, and you'll never see them again. In fact, it means this. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You go back to him the next day and say, God, you remember that sin? No, because he's able to forget. He's able to cast it as far as the east is from the west. He's able to remember it no more. Do you catch the sense of the dire circumstance? We were dead because we were sinners. And we were getting what we deserved. But because of Jesus, he's made us alive. And he has forgiven us. Of those transgressions that had weighed us down. And listen to this. It said he has canceled out your certificate of debt. I love that. Canceled out literally means to smear out or obliterate. It is the removal of that which hindered fellowship with God. In the times of Christ, this certificate of debt was a handwritten bill. A prisoner, before he was thrown into prison, had to acknowledge what he had done. There was a handwritten bill of the sin that he had committed. And Paul says that handwritten bill, that I owe you, has been paid. If you and I had to pay that I owe you, we're in trouble. 
Have you ever gotten somewhere and didn't have enough money to pay for what the bill was? I'm not going to embarrass anybody this morning. But my wife was at a local restaurant. Let's just call it Carabas. And she was picking up a to-go order last night. One of our trustees pulled into the parking lot and said, my daughter's in here. She doesn't have enough money to pay her bill. Now, I don't know if they'll still let you wash dishes or not. But we've all been there, haven't we? We either got there and we thought we had our wallet. Have you ever pulled that one? Hey, thanks for this food, but oh, wait a minute. I was going to pay. Where's my wallet? Oh, can you get it this time? I'll get it next time. Anybody ever had that happen? Do they ever get it next time? Listen, we had a bill. We had a certificate, a handwritten IOU that said we owe it all. And we couldn't pay it. And Jesus not only paid it, he took that certificate of debt away from us. And the last thing he did, he has disarmed those rulers in authority against us. He has shamed them. He has made a public display of them. And you and I don't see this anymore, but in the first century, here's what they were used to seeing. The Roman army would go out and conquer the enemy. They would come back through the gate And the Roman army with their leader would be at the front of the line and behind them would be their vanquished foe, kings, rulers, officials, military, and they would be stripped and disarmed. What did it say to all the people? They're defeated. The certificate of debt over you is defeated, folks. Jesus defeated it at the cross. So what do we do? We come to Christ guilty. We come to Christ confessing, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Most of you in this room would acknowledge you've done that. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, you can't pay the penalty for your sin, but Jesus has already paid it. So what do you do? You come to Jesus and acknowledge, I need you. I need a Savior. Would you please forgive me? Be the Lord of my life. And if you've done that, live like it. Because the enemy loves to get back in our ear and remind us of all the stuff we've done wrong. And what we need to remind him is, listen, Jesus already smeared that out. There's no handwriting on the wall. There's no IOU that I still owe. My debt has been paid. We overwhelmingly conquer through him. Let's pray together. Father, it's hard for us to even understand what Jesus did on the cross. We celebrate it year after year at Easter. And yet the truth is, it is really better than we can even imagine. Jesus paid it all. And so, yes, all to him we owe. God, this Easter, let that message sink Maybe like never before. And God, would it affect the way we live our lives tomorrow and the next day? And Lord, if there is someone here that doesn't know you that way, has never trusted you as Lord and Savior, they may have been to a hundred Easter services. But God, if you're touching a heart today, I pray for that individual to simply turn to you and say, Thank you for paying the price of my sin. 
And I ask you to save me today and to become Lord of my life. Thank you, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. If y'all would give me a second, I'm going to walk to the back to shake hands, but I don't have a mic that will, this cord is going to make that impossible. So sit until I kind of get back there. Can we do that?